Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just What we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Ariana Prail. In her new book, Liner Notes for the Revolution, cultural critic Daphne Brooks explores the black women artists that were major influences on American music and culture. Brooks uncovers the racial politics at play in the recording studio on stage and in the reviews of everything from blues to rock and roll, and gives a number of pivotal, underacknowledged black women their due. Daphne Brooks, who is a professor of African American studies at Yale University, joins us to share her take on the legacy and enduring impact of the black female musician. That's all next after this news. Something don't feel right because it ain't right, especially coming up after midnight. I smell your secrets and I'm not too perfect to ever feel this worthless. Hello, welcome to Forum. I'm Ariana Prail, and I'm one of many different voices KQED will be bringing to you as we search for a new host in this 9 a.m. hour. Mina Kim has been named the permanent host of the statewide 10 to 11 hour, and we got to know her and her vision for the show a little better yesterday when I interviewed her here on Forum. You can check that, at, that interview out on our website, kqed.org forum. Now on to today's show. Watching from my window, the curtain coming down. A blue as black as morning, a silence like a sound that rattles at the cages that hold my heart and mind. I call my name to wonder just what I hope to find. That's a bit of Rhiannon Giddens in her song, I'm On My Way. One of many black women artists, my next guest, Daphne Brooks, lifts up in her new book, Liner Notes for the Revolution, The Intellectual Life of Black Feminist Sound. Black women artists who Brooks defines as central characters in shaping American music and culture, but often to lesser credit and recognition. Brooks is a cultural critic and professor of African-American studies at Yale University and no stranger to liner notes herself, having written them for the complete Tammy Terrell album, Take a Look, Aretha Franklin Complete on Columbia album, and for Prince's Sign of the Times deluxe box set released last fall. Welcome to Forum, Daphne Brooks. 
Good morning. Terrific to be here. And I should add, this is a virtual homecoming because you're a Bay Area native. Yes, I am longing to be in my homeland right now in cold, cold Connecticut. But my, my heart, obviously, pun intended, no pun intended, will always reside in San Francisco in the Bay Area. And I'll just add another note. I was very pleasantly surprised to learn that your sister is Rennell, as in the Rennell. Rennell in the morning, Rennell's record party, formerly on local st- stations of KISS and KBLX. And she's also the longtime announcer for the San Francisco Giants. So it sounds like working with music is clearly running in your family. It absolutely is. And, you know, one of my dream side projects or a project that I encourage my students to take up is to tell the story of older sisters as gateways to popular music culture, even Cameron Crowe and Almost Famous um, has a narrative about that. And that was certainly true for uh, my relationship with my sister as a child growing up in in Menlo Park. She brought home the records and there was a break, um, at which point I started listening to punk and new wave. (laughs) But but for early, my early years, my sister was uh, one of my greatest cultural educators. Oh, well, Let's dive into talking about your book. Um, And first, I guess to establish um, for those who may be less familiar, what are liner notes and what purpose have they served in music over the years? Because it is a dying art in in the digital age. It is, although there are some people who who would like to debate that, um, you know, and I'm I'm excited about those debates um, continuing to unfold. But historically, they were um, promotional um, um, modes of, of, of um, giving a kind of profile of the artist and the recording itself. They, they literally were called liners because they were on um, the linings to the records. Um, so you would have, uh, you know, it could be a producer, it could be um, a journalist. Sometimes it was the musician himself, so often himself, um, who would be writing about um, the recording in some way or fashion. But by the mid 20th century, um, once we're reaching the golden age of kind of jazz music criticism and the onset in the 60s of um, the golden age of rock music criticism, so much of um, which that work um, emerged out of the Bay Area, um, it became a kind of, um, you know, aesthetic art form, a way in which to sort of experiment with and write alongside the recording. Um, to draw out, you know, symbolism, um, the backstory of the recording itself. Um, sometimes it would live, um, provide the artist with a platform to talk about his or her, um, you know, approach to craft and, and the recording. Um, but in these later years, of course, as you just mentioned, because of the digital age, the sort of the, the material beauty of um, the record itself and the way in which packaging, you know, has fallen by the wayside, there are less accessible um, ways to be able to access the kind of narrative um, that accompanies the recording that we saw in the liner note form for much of the second half of the 20th century. So I'd love for you to share with us what inspired you to write liner notes for the revolution. And I think an excerpt from your book will help explain some of that for us. Do you mind reading a bit from your introduction? Sure, no problem. How is it possible for black women, popular musicians, an Aretha, a Whitney, a Beyonce, some of the most widely imitated artists in the world to exist simultaneously at the fringe and yet at the center of the culture industry? 
Perpetually, they remind us that, as Nicki Minaj put ever so plainly in her Twitter beef with Taylor Swift, it is high time that we reckon with a quote-unquote system that doesn't credit Black women for their contributions to pop culture freely. Quickly, as they reward others, we are huge trendsetters, not second-class citizens that get thrown crumbs. This isn't anger. This is hashtag information, end quote. Minaj's wake-up call forces us to ask whether we have a language for these artists. Do we have a way of even beginning to tell the story of these women, the ones who, as the pioneering Black feminist pop music critic Danielle Smith, I should say that she's also a barrier native, yep. uh, she puts it, quote, um, they've been overworked, underpaid, and underappreciated for too long. Like Smith, I too long for a story that amounts to a quote-unquote pageant, one that, as she puts it, starts as far back as the women hacking sugarcane and threshing rice, end quote. How then to convey a story that is this vast, one that takes account of the world, that as she reminds Black women, quote-unquote, nurtured and cleaned and imprinted and built. Wow, thank you for sharing that. And and to kind of take us back to some of that history, one of the women you lift up early on in the book is early 20th century blues singer Mamie Smith. First, let's have a listen to her 1920 song Crazy Blues, and then we'll talk about her. Crazy Blues by Mamie Smith. Daphne Brooks, why did you choose to highlight Mamie Smith and her blues? Well, aside from the fact that she is the first African-American to record the blues in 1920, um, she also is kind of a figure who's the gateway to understanding the extent to which American popular music culture um, is an undemocratic you know, history. Um, it's one in which the first uh, decade of the 20th century uh, saw label owners, white male labor, la label owners making decisions about who would be able to cut records and popular records in particular. For the first decade of the 20th century, um, African-Americans were, were, were barred um, informally, though extensively from um, recording studios for a range of re reasons, including anti-blackness, um, but with the, within that rubric, kind of um, presumption that um, African-American consumers were not interested in buying records, that black musicians did not have the, the discipline um, to lay down recordings that would sell to the masses. So that first decade before Mamie Smith, you have um, white artists recording their interpretations of the blues. So her breakthrough is significant. It's revolutionary. Um, it became, you know, the point at which um, the mass circulation of um, African-American sonic aesthetics is put into play. 
and uh, you know, an African-American woman did that as my students like to say. So I wanted to make sure that she was central to the story that she could both begin and in some ways um, be the point of entry to the ending of the story that I'm trying to tell in this book. And I'm glad you did because you know, I know Bessie Smith and I think um, yes. that name is really um, kind of more known popularly, but I did not know Mamie Smith. And why do you think that is that she, you know, to be the first black woman vocalist to record the blues is, is pretty huge. Kind of where do you think she got lost? Yeah. I mean, there are, there are different theories. I, I like to lean into the theory that she was a vaudeville um, entertainer who, um, you know, moved away from some of the expectations about, um, blues women's sonic aesthetics um, that she, you know, became um, familiar with and, and um, conversant in ethnic impersonations, which were very much a part of the vaudeville landscape. Um, so the, the sort of the kind of um, presumptions about how Black women were supposed to sound on um, on records and in um, the pop cultural imaginary, Mamie Smith sort of falls outside of that. But maybe the more important um, point to make here is that um, Bessie Smith, <laughs> Bessie Smith outsang her, uh. Ma Rainey outsang her, right? <laughs> yeah. That there were, right. you know, there was an entire um, culture of um, of Black women entertainers who'd been working the tent show circuit, you know, Alberta Hunter um, um, and Bessie, you know, in that decade before um, her recordings, Ma Rainey, who, you know, is called the mother of the blues, um, you know, who mentored Bessie, they they all um, entered through that door that maybe um, kicked open, um, and to a certain extent, you know, she 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 falls back, um, but again, her contribution was um, undeniable. We're talking with Daphne Brooks, author of Liner Notes for the Revolution, The Intellectual Life of Black Feminist Sound, and we invite you, our listeners, to join the conversation. Who are the Black women musical artists who have been an important part of your life soundtrack in one way or another? Do you have a memory of reading the liner notes from a favorite album that made a big impression on you? Give us a call, 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum. Or email your questions to forum at kqed.org. And we'll go into the break hearing a bit of... Valerie June's Astral Plane, someone else, a modern artist who is kind of carrying on the blue soul folk tradition. The day will come when you're ready. Just trust. Dancing on the Astral Plane, holy water cleansing Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set ten years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com.
Abby Lincoln, and we are talking with Daphne Brooks, professor of African-American studies at Yale University and author of Liner Notes for the Revolution, The Intellectual Life of Black Feminist Sound. So let's talk about Abby Lincoln. She was a thinker, a civil rights activist, a writer, in addition to being a talented jazz singer. Um, What did she bring to the conversation in the context of your your book and Black Feminist Sound? She's so interesting because um, she starts out as a supper club singer. She was drop dead gorgeous, um, and so kind of you know, got sucked into the culture industry as um, um, a, a sort of you know an African American um, pen up Dorothy Dandridge, Mar- Marilyn Monroe type figure, and then rejects all that. And there are a number of incredible um, scholars who've done work on Abby Lincoln from. Farrah Jasmine Griffin to um, Eric Porter to Scott Saul. Um, they've all kind of, you know, identified the ways in which she was so central to the evolution of bebop um, as a, a, an arm of um, sonic black power within the universe of jazz. And for Abby Lincoln, um, you know, she's one of those sort of forebears to intersectional thinking um, in the sense that she was making claims about um, black liberation is being tied to black women's liberation. Um, one of the things that people don't know about Abby Lincoln is that she um, she writes um, journalism, journalistic articles. She delivers lectures, especially around 65 at the time of the Moynihan Report, infamous report from um, Senior, Senator Daniel Patrick Moynihan, which um, largely pathologized the Black family um, by way of um, the Black matriarchal figure. So Abby Lincoln, along with Nina Simone and some of her other contemporaries, were um, some of the artists who spoke up about um, the, 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 the misrepresentation of African-American women that um, paid little attention to the centuries-long um, um, you know, history of their um, sexual and social um, and political exploitation. So Abby Lincoln delivers lectures on this topic. She um, publishes articles in Ebony, um, but she also uses um, the music itself as a form of criticism, um, as, as a form of historical documentation. Um, at that talk that she gives in 1965 at the New School, she actually you know, gives just a primer course on um, the history of Black women musicians from Bessie Smith forward who um, you know, operated as cultural historians, as, um, you know, Chuck D would call it in the 1980s about hip hop, um, the black community, CNN, um, you know, as, as critics um, of the world and also as archives of memory. So Abby, Abby is central to this story as well, because she, she is both an archivist and a critic, as well as being one of our genius musicians of the, of the jazz tradition. Yeah, and, and speaking of the articles, her essay, Who Will Revere the Black Woman, and that was published in 1966, is really stand out in that way. And I think I discovered it, somebody kind of tweeted it in, in connection to something that was going on in the news and maybe discovered about five years ago. And I remember looking at the byline to see Abby Lincoln, and I was like, wait, that Abby Lincoln? <laughs> you know, the one that I recognize as a jazz yes. singer. Yeah. I mean, this is what is, um, you know, this untold story that I wanted to draw to the fore in this book is the extent to which we have so many Black women artists 
know, who um, operate in a kind of intellectual universe. And I guess I wanted to make clear that those boundaries are porous between their music and their intellectualism. Um, in the same ways we can think about Dylan writing chronicles, you know, um, there are all sorts of women of color um, music makers who, you know, really took it upon themselves to value not only their own music, the music of their peers, but to do a kind of historical work um, you know, at the level of writing and, um, you know, public historian speaking and um, producing experimental sounds, right, that open up our relationship to history. Again, we're talking with Daphne Brooks, author of Liner Notes for the Revolution, The Intellectual Life of Black Feminist Sound. And if you have any questions for her, or if you're a Black woman musician, what's been your experience of sharing your music with the world? Or what woman of color musician has received less attention that she should in your, in your eyes? You can give us a call at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum. Or email your questions to forum at kqed.org. Sam writes, I remember as an eight-year-old child hearing a record my dad uh, had of Aretha Franklin singing Bridge Over Troubled Water. It was one of the first times I can remember getting goosebumps all over my whole body, and those goosebumps are now what I seek out in music, almost like a drug. On the rare occasion when I am lucky enough to get them again, I am so grateful. Do you have any just thoughts for with Sam's comment? So many thoughts. Hey, Sam, <laughs> you and me. Um, Aretha live at the Fillmore West in 1971. My favorite, um, you know, set of recordings um, by Aretha and Friends. And if you can get your hands on um, the multi-disc set that um, includes um, the the series of nights in which she was performing with um, the late great King Curtis, as well as you know guest appearances by Ray Charles and um, Billy Preston was in the round with her. Um, it's it's electrifying, and that particular performance I, I continue to go back to because of the ways in which um, it, it models um, what a genius Aretha Franklin was, not only as a musician who accompanied herself, um, you know, an extraordinary pianist, as well as a groundbreaking, um, you know, um, history-making um, vocalist, but somebody who, by way of her aesthetic talents, um, was invested in cultivating community. You can really hear it on those recordings, just the ways in which the crowd responds to her um, and all of these different affective dimensions. Um, it's extraordinary. It always brings me to tears. Um, the day after, no, the day that she passed when I was on Morning Edition, they played that track and I, I couldn't make it through the interview. So so please don't play it right now. <laughs> We don't we don't have that one one in the deck, sadly. Okay, Um, okay. but I guess that's for for the benefit of you being able to carry on with us. Okay. Well, well, now let's let's turn to the artist you devote your epilogue to, uh, Beyonce and her 2016 album film Lemonade. Daphne Brooks, you write, her lemonade kicks down the door between Black past and Black futures, pulling us toward the light and willing us to come up for air. 
Why was that project so significant for you? And, and why was it important to highlight her in this book as well? Oh, how much time do we have? I know. Um, you know, <laughs> just I about mean, 10 I, minutes till the break. But right, yes. <laughs> okay, fair enough, fair enough. I mean, I'll just say that um, I, that the fact that she's, um, you know, a global pop superstar, you know, threatened in some ways to get in the way of um, the global public recognizing um, just what an historically significant um, recording that was um, and continues to be. It was the first album of its kind, um, obviously at the visual level, working in tandem um, with the sonic landscape that she collaborated with a number of other creatives to bring to life. Um, it was the first kind of project of its kind to to take seriously the history of uh, the long history of Black women in American culture um, and um, the different kinds of layers of um, intimate um, exclusion and subjugation, but also social and political exclusion and subjugation. Um, and it rooted it in the material world of um, New Orleans, where um, you know the roots of her family reside, um, but more specifically, the history of Hurricane Katrina, which itself was a microcosm of African-American subjugation in American culture. So I wanted to be able to to pay attention to that, the kind of the density of that history um, that she's um, documenting through sound and vision. Um, and, you know, as many, many, many critics um, took note of the significance of um, a cultural institution like the Grammys, um, deciding to award album of the year to, um, to Adele, who has, you know, talked about Beyonce as being an influence on her. So I wanted to really to pay attention to that. Um, you know, I think that that recording um, gives us a template for understanding the ways in which a whole range of contemporary artists, and, and this is why I'm, I'm really appreciative of the fact that you've been playing Rihanna Giddens and Valerie June, we would add to that Cicel McLaurin Salvant. These are contemporary artists who actually have been um, loved, so to speak, by institutions, the MacArthur Genius Grant um, for Rihanna Giddens and Cecile McLaurin Salvant. Beyonce, of course, in terms of being, you know, one of the most nominated, um, you know, Grammy, um, or one of the most nominated artists in, in, the, in the history of the Grammys um, in certain categories. Um, they've been identified um, by institutions as being significant, but the work that they are doing to go back into the historical archive and recuperate all of those nameless women, all of those women who've been forgotten, um, um, who were central to the evolution of popular music culture, um, you know, makes them significant in a variety of different contexts. And, and Beyonce has a long history of, of operating as this kind of conduit for, you know, memories of other, um, you know, pivotal Black women artists from Tina Turner to Betty Davis to Diana Ross. She's kind of, I'd like to say, a, a walking historical archive. So I wanted to, to really pay attention to her work. And I will also say um, that in that epilogue, I wanted to, to pay um, dual homage to one of my mentors and an icon of, of music writing who, um, you know, modeled for me a way of asking questions of history. And that's Graham Marcus, who's also from the Bay Area. He's actually from Menlo Park as well. He also went to Menlo Atherton High School in UC Berkeley, as I did. Um, he was the person who first gave me the opportunity to write about Mamie Smith. 
um, we could talk more about my whole relationship to rock music criticism, but um, his work on um, Bob Dylan and the basement tapes was a model for me to think about, well, what are the basement tapes for black women artists? And, you know, maybe Lemonade is where we start with that. And and yeah, you did mention, you know, when Adele did win for album of the year and she kind of got up on stage and gave some verbal liner notes. You know, she said, I can't accept this because, you know, Lemonade was kind of the album yes. of her life. And, yes. you know, and yet she, she did accept that. <laughs> yeah, she, she still <laughs> accepted was 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 gracious, you know, to her team and, and everybody. But it was um, but she gave she gave that shout out in a way that, um, yeah, made me think of, of liner notes and kind of adding the context that she thought the the Academy um, was missing. And I'm going to ask you a little bit more about the Academy in a, in a bit. But let's go to caller Elizabeth in Half Moon Bay. Hello. Hi, you're on. Hi. Um, I think every American and especially any American who's interested in American music and jazz uh, in particular, needs to know the name Hazel Scott. She was a virtuosic pianist along the lines of Oscar Peterson. I mean, she was amazing. Played between, like, I think, like the 40s and 60s, that era. And uh, yes. I'm sure she's not famous because she was, one, a woman, and two, a black woman. And yes. as so many black artists who don't get credit, uh, this is just such a big shame. This is American music. This is yes. our music, so we need to know. Hazel Scott. Please, please check her out if you're interested in, uh, she's a pianist, if I didn't mention that, in yes. American jazz. Daphne, I hear you ready to, <laughs> to oh jump gosh, in no, and share I'm, your I'm thoughts. I'm so thrilled <laughs> that you mentioned Hazel Scott. I mean, another reason why we don't know her name is she was blacklisted. So, you know, um, the, the political revolutionary vision of many of the artists that, um, you know, are in this book and, um, you know, who are central to um, the history of American um, popular music culture, um, who happen to be black women, you know, is, is an important um, part of this story. Hazel Scott um, is so terrific also to think about in relation to the genius black women pianist um, before and after her, alongside her, Mary Lou Williams, um, who is really kind of, you know, encapsulates the history of jazz as um, you know, someone who mentored the bebop generation, um, had been a boogie-woogie pianist, was a child prodigy, um, later moves into, um, after her conversion to Catholicism, kind of avant-garde um, sacred music. Um, it's extraordinary to think about alongside of Hazel Scott, um, as is Dorothy Donegan, another kind of, um, you know, adventurous um, bebop musician. Um, you know, that was really you know, crucial um, to my thinking in this book was to to try to to pay attention as well to the instrumentalist, um, the ways in which the instrumentalists um, have at their disposal, as do vocalists, but um, just a, a wide variety of aesthetic forms and um, sonic practices that, um, you know, are virtuosic and um, that have long gone um, underrepresented in, in cultural criticism and arts music criticism across the 20th and um, early 21st centuries. So thank you for that. Here's a comment from Matthew who writes, Thanks for highlighting Valerie June. I grew up in Memphis, her hometown. She played small restaurants and bars throughout my childhood in Memphis. It has been amazing to see her rise to fame. If I'm not mistaken, she also cleaned homes while pursuing music, entertaining white people and cleaning their homes too. The burden of becoming an artist is immense for anyone, but so much larger for black women. I fear in the pandemic it will become harder for black women to continue to pursue their art as hard times hit us all, but them hardest. Do you have any reflections on 
what Matthew shares? Oh, wow, that's just a, um, I, I just love Bay Area audiences. It's <laughs> really beautiful and important. And, you know, uh, Valerie June is someone who we brought to uh, the working group that I, um, that I um, co-direct called um, and, and started with my colleague, Brian Kane, also a Berkeley alum um, called Black Sound in the Archive. So I've had a chance to, to interview her. We didn't talk about her cleaning homes, but I'm not, it wouldn't surprise me. Um, and, and it wouldn't surprise me obviously for all the socioeconomic um, reasons that you outline in your comment, Matthew. Um, one of the artists who I identify in uh, my introduction, Esther Mae Scott, little known um, blues musician who ends up in um, DC, but spent much of her life in the South has an extraordinary story that I also try to emphasize is quite common that she uh, was doing domestic work um, by day and then, um, you know, finding a way to negotiate with her employer's ways of going to juke joints at night in order to play. She was friends with Lead Belly. Um, she documents her time, you know, being able to actually um, listen to Bessie Smith um, in the club. And that was another uh, important part of the story too, is to think about these black women musicians who are listening to each other, caring for each other. Valerie June is central um, to that kind of, kind of an effort. When she came to Yale, she talked about um, this musician, this, this um, blues uh, woman guitarist who she kind of stumbled across in her own sort of um, record store um, um, travels and decided to, to dig up um, interviews with her um, and how she would listen to the recordings of these um, interviews with Jessie Mae Hemphill. Um, becomes another reminder of how these women are archivists and historians and looking after each other. Um, it's a really powerful part of this book that I just wanted to make sure that people really can pay attention to. We're talking with Daphne Brooks, professor of African-American studies at Yale and author of Liner Notes for the Revolution, The Intellectual Life of Black Feminist Sound. More with her and more music after the break. I'm Ariana Prail. This is Forum. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. the song Eugene by up-and-coming British artist Arlo Parks. We're talking with Daphne Brooks, professor of African-American studies at Yale University and author of Liner Notes for the Revolution, The Intellectual Life of Black Feminist Sound. And just to play Arlo Parks coming out of the break, because you cited her recently, and I'm just curious, what makes you excited about her voice when looking at the next generation of black women artists? Mm. Well, she's 
you know, an important interpreter of songs. I first wrote, wrote about her um, in a piece I did for The Guardian last fall and thinking about Black artists and cultures of Blackness in relation to Radiohead, sometimes considered one of the whitest bands in the world. But my argument is that uh, a variety of different African-American artists have been drawn to the complexity of their sounds. And Arlo Parks, you know, as a teen, um, covering um, their first breakthrough hit, Creep, in a way that drew out all sorts of um, deep and complicated um, emotional nuances um, in the song itself, and also queering it to a certain degree um, as, as a bisexual artist, um, seemed like something that you know we should all be paying attention to, the ways that she's able to craft these kind of big feelings of intense intimacy with a level of sophistication and maturity um, that one wouldn't necessarily always associate with uh, with teen singers, but of course we know in the age of Billie Eilish um, that that's that's not the case so much anymore, and it never really has been. Um, again, if we think about the history of Aretha Franklin starting her um, her her popular music recording um, career on Columbia when she's 18 years old in um, 1960, when you think about Tammy Terrell, who's an undergrad at University of Pennsylvania, right before she begins uh, recording with her iconic hits with Marvin Gaye. We have a long history of younger Black women artists who um, are able to um, to use their platforms to think through a variety of different mature um, um, emotional narratives. And Arlo Parks continues that tradition, but also breaks open all of these new paths for thinking about the future of that tradition. And also in this Next Generation thread, an artist you talk about at length in the book is Janelle Monae. Let's hear a bit of her song, Look Into My Eyes, off her Electric Lady album that you included in the book. Of look into my eyes by Janelle Monet. What does Janelle bring to the conversation on music and culture and modernity that you wanted to highlight? Yeah, she's she works with an extraordinary ensemble of collaborators um, called the Wonderland Wonderland Arts Collective in Atlanta. Um, and one of the one of the most exciting um, aspects of her work that receives little in attention um, in the popular domain is the extent to which it's deeply literary. Um, we know with um, the kind of um, resurgence of interest in Afrofuturism as an aesthetic and as a cultural movement um, that one associates with Sun Ra and Parliament Funkadelic, that she, she um, continues that tradition. But her literary interests in, say, Octavia Butler and also a variety of different kinds of cultural forms um, that are linked to, to Black life that she then is able to document along with her collaborators in the form of the liner notes. So she's an artist who um, is an exa example of someone who is using the form in this contemporary moment to kind of open up this, this broader historical relationship to each of her tracks. And many people don't know that, you know, in the CD form, um, of her recordings, including her most recent breakthrough album, um, Dirty Computer, include these notes that um, are trying to, you know, 
invite the listener to engage with all of these different kinds of um, um, you know, intimate relationships with the memories of the songs and what the songs can trigger. So um, one, of, one of her tracks, um, she, she, she writes about in the liner notes as, as kind of being evocative of the big house burning down in Django Unchained. Um, so the capaciousness of cultural memory that um, Janelle Monae is kind of working through in, in her liner notes is once again, a kind of public um, history work that I wanted to, to make sure that we kind of paid attention to, that this is really fascinating, critical, intellectual work that, that deepens our understanding of the music's resonance um, and movement through the, through, our, through the cultural imaginary. Well, let's go to another caller. Robin in Berkeley, you're on. Hi, thank you so much for taking my call. This is an amazing program. I can't wait to re-listen to it with a pen in my hand. I <laughs> so much amazing information, and I can't wait to read your book. Um, I'm a dance teacher. I, I teach uh, beginning adults and also older adults um, modern dance. And what I do each month is to develop a playlist um, that really inspires the movement and serves also to um, educate people about a variety of music. And this month, I really am focusing on women's history. Um, and there are just so many, um, there are so many people to choose from. And but I would just love to know if um, you recommend like a playlist or if there's a way that I can get kind of under the um, more, uh, you know, like if I, if, I will just say I, this morning, I was just looking for um, a black uh, female uh, piano players that I could mm -hmm. include. And, you know, all I got was lists of the hottest, the 10 hottest piano players and the sex, you know, uh, and right. Hazel yeah. Scott Alicia Keys. show up. Mm -hmm. yes, <laughs> so, so I'd just love to know about what resources you'd recommend for this month and, and future playlists. Mm. Yeah, and this actually, we have a, a comment from Dominic that asks, is there a compilation or a music list that accompanies the book? Right. Um, yes, so. there is on oh, Spotify. Okay. If you if you search for liner notes for the revolution, there is a nine hour playlist that accompanies this book. Amazing. So, <laughs> um, so that sounds like it's a good reference point for for Colin yeah. Robin as well. But do you have are there any just off the top of your head that you'd want to shout out as a couple recommendations for her? Oh, gosh. Um, for playlists, I would, I would say I would want to flag for everyone that Danielle Smith, who's one of my intellectual heroes, first black woman to edit Vibe and first black woman to edit Billboard from the San Francisco Bay Area as well from Oaktown, I believe, also went to Berkeley. There's a, there is yep. a lot of Berkeley residents here. Um, she has a book coming out later this year called Shine Bright about black women in popular music culture. She has a podcast yes. on uh, Spotify. Black Girl so Songbook. Yes, yes, that is worth listening to. Um, you know, I, I, I admire Danielle um, so deeply and I feel as though this is such an um, electrifying moment in which her book is coming out. My colleague Maureen Mann has a book called Black Diamond Queens, African-American Women in Rock and Roll um, that, that just came out as well. So, you know, part of the problem I, I like to say with this book is that, um, you know, think of a broad sweeping history of black women artists and popular music culture. And this book is not that. It's the story of why that book to a larger, large extent has yet to be written. And so, you know, my, my book is about um, 
It's about tastemaking. It's about cultural institutions and power and what it means for the artists themselves and feminist thinkers and fans critically. And I hope we can maybe talk about this a little bit before yeah. we're done. Um, fans are so, are, are and have been and continue to be so crucial to looking after these artists who um, were overlooked, um, barred from entry, denied um, 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 being defined as having um, central value to American popular music culture. Um, well, so. yeah. Well, let's yeah, let's go ahead and and go there because <laughs> I was yeah. um, interested. You know, the Grammys yeah. are coming up in a week and a half, and yeah. and you know, like other award shows, and I know you bring up the Rock and Roll mm-hmm. Hall of Fame as another institution yes. that you know mm-hmm. these are vo- that have voting bodies that still yeah. aren't reflective of the industry yeah. or our country. Mm-hmm. Period. When it comes to diversity, mm-hmm. and that shows up then, and who gets honored. So, what are your thoughts on? Um, kind of the Recording Academy, the Hall of Fame, kind of those types of of institutions and just kind of their role at this point in 2021 and even more broadly in the early part of the 21st century. Yeah, I mean, what I would say, and I, I, I mentioned this before, is that we have to really lean into and question the ways in which um, the history of American popular music culture has been an, is an un, is, is a story of the undemocratic, right? How it's been narrated, how it's been curated, who's been valued as the key players, the lead vocalists and instrumentalists and entertainers of worth, were the innovators and geniuses, right? So the history of all that has been shaped by a narrow set of thinkers and tastemakers and label owners um, and critics, most central to my story, who shaped their own ideas about what to value through their own experiences and desires and sociocultural biases. And so really important to my story, and I have to mention her since I, both because she's in the book and because I know she's listening, is my 94-year-old mother, Juanita Brooks, um, who grew up in um, Jim Crow, Texas, um, and who, um, you know, upon um, the occasion of her 90th birthday, um, celebration a few years ago, I conducted an oral history with her and she ends up telling me this, these incredible stories about going to the record stores um, when she was growing up with her girlfriends and um, how much she valued those sounds, um, the sounds of black women artists, but African-American, African-American artists more broadly. And that story paralleled my own story of growing up, going to Tower Records, Moment of Silence for Tower Records in yeah. Los Alamos, <laughs> California, um, in, the, in the late 70s, early 80s, mid 80s. Um, and and finding finding my own sense of um, pleasure through records, but also through you know Tower famously had a book department, and so I'd spend all this time reading rock music criticism there. Um, but as a fan, before I was a critic, you know I had a real deep commitment to to looking after um, you know artists who were so important to me that I I didn't always see um, um, valued um, and cared for. Um, by by the institutions who defined, you know, what mattered and what didn't matter. And so that's crucial to the story. It's interesting that in the wake of our 2020 racial reckoning, as it's called, we're seeing this unprecedented number of Black women artists on the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame ballot, including Tina Turner, who many people don't know, only uh, resides in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame oh, right Ike now Turner. with her abuser, Ike Turner. So this is, this is a moment to, to turn that around and to think about you know, her revolutionary craft instead of the story of her subjugation. Um, You know, it's an incredible story being able to extricate herself from um, that kind of domestic terror. 
Um, but the story of her art is, is uh, um, you know, a, a rich, deep and powerful and transformative pop culture story that um, hopefully the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame will take seriously now. And she does have a documentary, actually. She was just tweeting about it yesterday. It comes out at the end of this month. So fans can be on the lookout for that. And kind of in the vein with with films, where do you see kind of recent films like Ma Rainey's Black Bottom on Netflix, The United States Mm -hmm. versus Billie Holiday, 2015's Mm -hmm. Bessie coming into the conversation for you? I know Aretha Franklin will be getting the biopic treatment later this year. Are they part of the bigger archive of Black Feminist Sound Mm -hmm. as you see it or giving these artists their flowers? Yes. I mean, I, I did. I wrote a long piece for the um, the LA Review of Books a few years ago. It was actually the year that the Amy Winehouse documentary won um, in um, the doc category for the Oscars, which was also the same year that um, whatever whatever happened, Miss um, Simone, um, the Nina Simone biopic by Liz Garbus was nominated as well. So I've, I've, I'm kind of obsessed with this topic. And for the purposes of time, I will say um, I'm thrilled that... Um, the D. Rees could take on Bessie because um, there were all sorts of um, experimental leaps and risks that she took in trying to um, tell the story of Bessie Smith um, through a kind of lens that paid close attention to her artistry in ways that we we had never seen um, cinematically before. I loved in that film the ways in which Queen Latifah and um, Oh gosh, oh my gosh, I'm gonna forget her name. Um, she was playing Ma Rainey. She, she's won an Oscar for um, um, for Precious. I'm, I'm blank out her name. Oh, Gabrielle Sidibe? No, no, not, she was, oh. she was, she was uh, one of the callers is gonna know. I I hate that I'm forgetting her name, but she played Ma Rainey. And I will just say that the scene- Oh, that Monique, film, Monique. Monique, thank Sorry, you. Sorry, yes, Monique. Oscar winner, right. Monique. Yes. largely, for, right, who's largely um, pulled away from the public sphere at this point, but- um, with a couple of exceptions, but there's a scene in that film where um, she is coaching Bessie Smith on how to look out at the audience and play to the audience. Um, that scene and one other scene late in the film where they are reading the white kind of um, cultural intellectual who was deeply engaged with the Harlem Renaissance, um, Carl Van Vechten. They're reading um, about Carl Van, v- Van Vechten in, um, in, in Variety, I believe. Um, those two scenes I'd never seen in, um, um, cinematically, you know, in any form before. Um, this kind of deep attention to strategically thinking about craft, um, the level of Black women's artistry between two women, kind of mentoring each other, um, and then really having a meditation on white critics and, and what, they, what they did get and what they didn't get about their work. Um, so Dee Rees, I think, um, really is doing, you know, was doing fantastic work in that particular film. I haven't seen the uh, Lee Daniels meditation on, on, on Billie Holiday. I will just say that everyone should go back to Farrah Griffin's pathbreaking book, 20, 20, 20th anniversary of the book, If You Can't Be Free, Be a Mystery in Search of Billie Holiday. Um, yeah, so I, you know, I have, and then there are the two Aretha films, right, with um, Jennifer Hudson and uh, with Cynthia Erivo. And Let's just say it's terrific that we can imagine um, you know, paying close attention to Aretha's narrative through the prism of genius, at least in the case of the Cynthia Arriva project, which I know is tied to National Geographic of all things and their kind of multi-part series on genius. So that's exciting. 
Well, Evelyn writes, I'm so delighted to hear about your book. Last semester, I took a jazz blues class and wrote a paper on Sister Rosetta Tharp. It was so mm-hmm. hard to find books on women musicians. We need more literature on these magnificent women. Yes. Well, so that we're, that we're in our yeah, last um, minute yes. or so. Yeah, what are your kind of final thoughts? And, and maybe, no, I'm gushing right? here. I just want to, as long as I keep citing, you know, important interlocutors to me yeah. who are doing this work, Gail Wald, who wrote the pathbreaking biography of, of Sister Rosetta Tharp, which effectively got her into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, of course, posthumously. So that, that's fantastic that you're doing that work out there. And Michael tweets, growing up in Chicago, I was struck by the talented Minnie Ripperton, an opera-trained singer-songwriter with a five-octave range, also Maya Rudolph's mother. Um, the other woman who stands out for me is blueswoman Coco Taylor, easily a match mm. for Muddy Waters or Howlin' Wolf. Yes. 30 seconds for any final thoughts on that comment? I'm trying to seconds. squeeze in as many. <laughs> yes. No, I, I, you know, Minnie Ripperton, um, you know, also having another renaissance, especially as people like Mariah Carey, who's long, you know, identified Minnie Ripperton as being pivotal to her own sound. Um, um, are, 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 you know, pivoting back to her again in order to identify her prominence in revolutionizing soul singing in the, um, in the 70s and early 80s. Um, and Coco Taylor, I would just flag for many reasons, but she ends up collaborating late in her career with um, this blues feminist archivist um, who is a central player in my book, Rosetta Wrights. She was um, a white Jewish New Yorker who um, really recuperated the history of the blues through a feminist lens. So, we want to shout out the late, great Rosetta Wrights as well. Well, thank you so much, Daphne Brooks, professor of African-American studies at Yale University and author of Liner Notes for the Revolution, the Intellectual Life of Black Feminist Sound. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure. I appreciate it. I'm Ariana. This is Forum. Let's go out to some Tracy Chapman. Maybe together we can get somewhere. Any place is better. Starting from zero, got nothing to lose. Maybe we'll make something. Myself, I got nothing to prove. You got a fast car. I got a plan to get us out of here. Been working at the convenience store. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set ten years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. 
New episodes of Soul to Story are available now.